Hello and welcome to the For the Evolution of Business podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Brady, and I'm here today with Mohammed Ahmed. Mo, as everyone calls him, is the CEO of Engaging Diversity and Inclusion and leads the firm's diversity practice. He most recently served as Director of Diversity and Inclusion in the President's Office at Nazareth, Nazareth College, where he spearheaded many initiatives, including the founding of the first civil rights journey to Selma, Birmingham, and Montgomery, Alabama, and Memphis, Tennessee. He developed the President's Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion Awards, Thinking Out Loud Collaboration, Sustained Dialogue Series Program, among others. He collaborated with Campus Safety in investigating bias and discrimination incidents, advising several student groups, collaborated with faculty and staff departments, and facilitated campus-wide diversity trainings for students, faculty, and staff. Prior to NAS, he was Assistant Director of Admissions and Multicultural Counselor, Workplace Advisor, and Chaplain at Bucknell University, where he co-authored the Enrollment Strategic Plan for Multicultural Recruitment that led to the enrollment of the most diverse class in the university's history. Mo earned his Bachelor of Science in Business Administration and Master of Science in Human Resource Management from Nazareth College. He holds an Executive Leadership Certificate from the Harvard Kennedy School and several certifications, including a certificate as a Restorative Justice Facilitator. Thanks so much for joining us today, Mo. Thank you, Andy, for having me. I was saying before we got recorded, I wish we, I wish we had more of our conversations recorded because you have certainly taught me uh, you know, so much since uh, we actually got matched up in the YWCA's uh, racial equity program person to person. And gosh, I, I really hit the jackpot on that one. Uh, but we, we become, become friends and you know, stayed in touch. And, and I wanted to actually start with that because uh, you, know, you have taught me so much over the course of our friendship. And, and I've been reflecting a lot lately on all of the friends that I have that have really you know, helped to educate me on uh, you know, different diversity and inclusion types of topics. And you know, in some ways, it's almost kind of unfair that, that emotional labor and that extra work that we expect people to do. So while I'm really appreciative to friends like you and, and, and others who have, who have taught me along the way, um, I never want to expect that. So I'm curious for you how you try to balance that, but also like at what point in your life did you go from maybe doing this with your friends in terms of, you know, trying to educate them to deciding you wanted this to be a career? Thank you, Andrew. Um, I just want to premise that the, the relationship and the friendship is mutual. The feelings uh, guarding that, as you, you know, and I know we've demonstrated this um, over the course of our friendship. And that uh, to also take a time to uh, pause to acknowledge the fact that uh, the humility you just showed in your know, statement about the taxation, the cultural taxation that typically happens uh, with uh, people of color when we speak about diversity issues and the, and the teaching that comes from uh, or the expectation of educating um, the, 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 the masses across the country. So that's something that takes a lot of introspective um, analysis and not many folks could identify it as quickly as you did. So uh, I know based on our interactions, I know the capacity is there for you to do beyond that. And so I just want to acknowledge that right now because it's part and parcel of the conversation and the struggles we are, we're facing right now. Uh, a little history. Oh, how do I start? I've always been someone who was uh, social justice bent uh, uh, to some extent. Um, I've always wanted to be involved in things that uh, aren't typically uh, um, 
where folks want to uh, delve into. So for example, um, as I was working out of college and I you know, started my career in, uh, in risk management, um, I realized very quickly that I was always drawn back into education to help one way or another. So one of my mentors told me very early and said, this is a passion you have, you may have to focus on it. It didn't, it didn't dawn on me until I, I spent some time with my mother before, she, my late mother before she passed. And she said, you know, you, 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 you've always been disbent towards these social justice issues. It's maybe it's time for you to follow that passion. And, you know, that was those last words that were like, okay, I got back and I left finance and I went into higher ed to recruit students of color, particularly be a multicultural recruiter. Uh, that was an intentional uh, exit from finance into that space. And then when I got there, I, I was fortunate enough uh, to help spearhead some things. And I got to Bucknell and I did my work there. And then I came back to finish my master's. And um, I ended up taking on a role in the capacity of um, an interim uh, director for diversity because I was a, a graduate assistant in that role, um, filling the gaps of not having a director uh, to, to move that department forward. So the work has started uh, a long time ago, but to get it to a professional level, uh, honestly started about eight years ago. Eight to nine years, I spent time you know, working intentionally to recruit students from all walks of life, uh, but focusing squarely on diversifying spaces uh, that I operate in. So as a result of that, I started consulting and I, as a director of Nazareth, at Nazareth College, my consultations grew, uh, my speakership grew, and so on and so forth. So I decided to step outside of academia at the time so that I could spread the love a little bit more further. And as we've talked in the past, I've always shared with you that this work is not, uh, for me, just about consciousness lifting. It's truly about uh, connecting hearts and minds uh, to really help people perform and become the optimal selves. Um, and so that's where my focus lies. And as an HR bent person with social justice in it, you always find me with HR departments and, and corporations and organizations dealing with some of the measurable, key tangible, measurable ways in which we can do this work more meaningfully. Yeah, you know, it, it's really interesting. You, I know you've been doing this for, for quite a long time, but there are a lot of companies who for a long time have had somewhere on their strategic plan that they want to, you know, increase diversity, um, whether that's in the recruitment, whether that's in their leadership, uh, all different, all different elements of that. And I think that many of them were well-intentioned, um, but they also didn't make it an urgent enough priority or we wouldn't be here, you know, where we are today and we wouldn't be here however many, you know, hundreds of years later having made much less progress than than is needed um, but at the same time we are in a in a place where I think now uh, there are a lot of companies that have moved this up to the top of their priority list and in some in some ways that's because uh, you know the the culture and society and their customers are demanding it uh, mm -hmm. so you know whatever it takes really like how like how do we make this that that top priority and so I, I thought as I was figuring out how to maybe frame this conversation, maybe mm -hmm. kind of taking it in three parts. One being, there's a lot of, of 
trauma bubbling to the surface right now in our, in our businesses and in, in the broader society, and maybe talking a little bit about how to deal with that kind of in the, in the triage form, but then also maybe looking a little bit farther out, you know, what can we do to start to open up lines of dialogue and, and have some of these conversations and bring them more openly? And then lastly, of, of those three parts being, how do we actually change structures and systems and the ways that we're recruiting? And so kind of, kind of thinking about it on those three different frames, because the way that maybe we could start is, you know, I've seen, and, and I've seen this, I'll, I'll use an example from schools that I've seen on, on social media, where there's a lot of local schools that have brought together uh, students who maybe are dealing with different struggles, and their decision was to separate, ha have separate spaces for uh, students of color and white students, uh, at least initially. And I saw a lot of back and forth of, uh, you know, people that, that felt different ways about that. And even though that's a school example, I think that probably, uh, you know, businesses are dealing with this as well, because people of color are, are dealing with different things and dealing with different traumas than, than uh, you know, the white people in their companies. So what are some things as you think about as we're dealing with this trauma is, is that separate space? Is that a good place to start? Is that productive, counterproductive? What's a good way for, for those schools or maybe for leaders that are listening right now to start to, uh, you know, deal with these traumas that are going on in our society? Wow, you said a lot there, Andrew. <laughs> and I'm glad we're structuring it in, a, in, a, in this way because it, it just lends itself for us to have a little specific uh, view of what we're talking about. So for, for, for what we do in our line of work, we've always noticed that there's one thing, it's one thing to talk about intent but the impact of those intentions sometimes have severe consequences, um, even if people mean well. So intent versus impact is, is one of the very important issues we try to highlight uh, for folks to know that um, irrespective of positionality on issues and things we do, there's typically outcomes and consequences. Uh, all our decisions are consequential. And so, when you see folks separating two groups, then what, they, what you would hear is providing what we call safe spaces so that students, particularly black students in some areas and also LGBTQ plus students, for example, to feel safe, to, to air out some of these heavy uh, issues that rest on their shoulders and also in their hearts to some extent. Now, that's a, 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 there are theoretical frameworks for that. There are a lot of good resources and reasons to provide those spaces. And what we forget is that we cannot rest on our laurels there. Once we open that door, we also have to find a space to do the inclusion aspect of it. Just as much as companies bring in people in, and we know we would talk, we'd talk about that as another subject, when folks bring people in and do recruitment efforts, it's one thing to bring people in to your organization or your business. It's another for them to feel a sense of belonging. So those two could be separated. Your recruitment efforts is one thing. The inclusion efforts are complete, could be completely different. So why a lot of times you see a lot of retention issues within organizations that have huge um, resources for recruitment. And folks come in and they leave because they're not a good place for them to to do that. So as students go into these safe spaces, I am an advocate for 
that and something else. I'm advocate for what we call brave space. The safe space is supposed to be a room for cultivating a brave space where true inclusion work can happen, right? So when we do this work, we do a sustained dialogue approach. We get students to do the safe space where they can air out even wherever Congress has caucuses of groups, of special committees, of people that's focused on certain issues. And then they come to Congress to air out those things, those differences, and talk about some of the ways in which the policies and the structures of things could change and, and alter, be altered based on different information and different ideas. Now, the brave space, however, has to be guarded with certain, has to be approached with certain methodologies and certain approaches. And one of the things you find common in this is what we call ground rules for engagement, for example, when you do inclusion and dialogue, sustained dialogue uh, work, where folks will have uh, some certain rules about how in which they will engage in these discussions of being brave. Because one thing we know for sure is that everybody you meet, as Bill Nay says, know something you don't know. So if we're approaching this from the positionality of a position of difference, that our difference is what we're talking about, then we ought to look at it that everybody we know will have some information or something that we need to listen to and how you listen is important. So in these ground rules, you have things like listen attentively and you know, give out room, respect difference, uh, speak respectively, and you know, all of these different things that come through these ground rules. And they're unique to each group. I, I always try to not do a cookie cutter, cutter approach uh, because each group is different. And so we always like to work with a group to develop these rules, these ground rules that guard how they will engage in these tough discussions as a group. That's where the inclusion work happens. Now, when the inclusion work happens, we can't leave these things to dialogue alone. So herein lies the opportunity when folks begin to be brave. They move from safe, safe space to a brave space. Herein lies the opportunity for them to what? Be actionable. What is next after these dialogues? After you're brave, demonstrate what that looks like. How would you go about advocating and building this uh, uh, agency uh, and having a voice that can carry through administration and organization and faculty and staff and so on and so forth. And same thing with organizations and companies. So uh, I believe that there's room for that, but we can't stop. We can't rest our on our laurels there. We have to broach the subject into a brave space so that folks can develop those authentic voices that we always talk about. Yeah, yeah, so important. And, and I think you make a, a great distinction in terms of, you know, yes, let's, let's start. Sometimes the, the safe space, uh, you know, gets a bad rap. Um, but I think it is, it is necessary as that first step, as long as we then start to, start to bring that, that dialogue once, you know, once the, as you mentioned, the ground rules are, are created. And so one of the things that I'm thinking about as you're talking is, as you know, some, this is something certainly I've been spending a lot of time thinking about, and, and hopefully a lot of our listeners have as well. Uh, you know, that are that are white people and trying to be better allies. Um, you know, I, I read this really interesting uh, perspective. I think it was on LinkedIn where you know some it, it was a person of color basically writing about how they're dealing with so much and when they're coming into work every day, but oh yeah, Ted, I'll still have that you know report to you by Friday, sort of a thing, right? And like all the things which. In a lot of ways, this is always going on, but now it's just even more bubbled to the surface. And so I'd be curious 
uh, for those white people that are listening, what advice you would give them kind of on, on two different tracks. One being what can or should they do for their employees of color um, or maybe maybe just friends of color, you know, outside of work scenarios to be better allies. And then on the other hand, what can those white allies do when they're in those all white spaces, um, you know, to try to call out, but in a productive way, um, in, in a growth oriented way, um, when they're seeing things that are unacceptable? Uh, so I, our firm opened up some uh, resources for folks. What we, we, we've done historically is that we keep certain resources, you know, for, for partners only um, to, to work on things. But as everything unfolded, I, um, we took the liberty to just take a step in this direction of providing uh, our own expertise and lens on some of these issues. So I, I wrote about 25 things you could do right now to start. Um, <laughs> Excellent. Well, I'll make, to li- I make sure to link to that in the show notes then. All right. So um, just, just as a folks might may have to sign in into, into, to, to see the whole thing. But just really to give some historical context to, to this conversation and also contemporary, to contemporary issues that have preceded this whole incident and these incidents that we are seeing right now so that folks contextualize why this is happening, right? How this came to being. And, and so when you see and you hear about uh, uh, your folks of color going to work, particularly black folks in this, in this conversation when we talk about race, uh, racism and race, that they walk into work having to perform the same things that they have to pro- they have to produce with everybody else the same expectations for everyone else. However, having these compounded issues of marginalization that typically happens uh, that create a, a, a lack of space for them to air out uh, the frustrations that we experience, a lack of support systems in place. Herein lies some of the conversations we have, we've had about conscious capitalism and what it looks like for conscious capitalists to pay attention to some of these subtleties that typically uh, permeate our workspaces on a regular basis. The, this whole issue um, has just exacerbated everything, but it's never been gone. This is not, this is not an issue uh, that just started this past month. It's been alive. You know, the folks and colleagues have been dealing with this for quite some time. So uh, in these steps, and one of the things that we talk about is to recognize um, and have the humility, right, to know that this person that I'm working with has endured this all this time, right? This entire time they've been enduring and just performing, smiling, going to lunch with me, doing all the things, reporting, providing those uh, 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 details, and so on and so forth that are required and expected of them, them, and that's okay. But at the same time, have to deal with some of the compounded marginalization and issues that they have to be confronted with on a regular basis and not have the privilege to even air it out, right, without being seemingly looked at as someone who's mad, who's angry, who's frustrated, who is making it another race issue, quote unquote. Um, This has become about them versus us conversation instead of seeing the common humanity that lies within this. When When the parts of our body ache, the entire body feels it. 
when your organ, any part of your organ aches, hurts, it's affected or infected, your entire body will feel it. And as a human race, we forget this component that diversity and inclusion efforts in organizations are typically seen as a numbers game, unfortunately, right? And as a result, when folks come in, if I'm at your organization and I cannot be my authentic self, particularly be able to feel a sense of belonging, I'm not going to be optimal. Just so you know, you can recruit as many as people of color as you want in your organization. If the culture within is not prepared and ready to acknowledge some of the things that we're talking about, then you will have these issues of revolving door policy or, 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 or um, retention issues that we see in organizations on, on a regular basis um, around surrounding these issues. That's one aspect of it. The other aspect is that utilizing these folks to educate you about some of these issues um, is also problematic in its own, you know, in, in its own, um, uh, what do you call it? Uh, in its own, it's an, in, a, in of itself, it's problematic. However, if, if the person is qualified, I've always said this, if the person is, has the wherewithal and has the background, right, to educate, then leadership has to be intentional in how they, one, support, provide the mechanisms to have this person help, right? do this work right the right way because they understand the organizational culture better than anybody coming in and if they could partner with others like ourselves i just finished a phone call with someone talking about this specific issue of of workplace uh, diversity efforts so if they can have that person if they're qualified if they're not qualified to do it that's where the problem lies that's where the issue is yeah, it's been one of the things I've been thinking about, again, with how, uh, you know, I can personally be more, uh, more of an ally in, in, again, hopefully many of our listeners wrestling with some of these things as well, is, you know, the, everyone I think is, uh, I, is on this continuum of, of awakening to these issues and also on a continuum of taking action on these issues. Uh, and when many white people, uh, you know, who may, may have been not as aware of this in the past, or sometimes willfully blind to this in the past, um, when they start on this journey, they're likely to probably say some hurtful things, um, you know, oftentimes unintentionally not recognizing it. Um, and, and I wonder too, if that's a place where white allies can, can help almost, right? Like you're talking about some of that emotional hardship. And, and one of the things I almost try to see as, as a possible role that I could take would be to be the person that can, you know, deal with some of those more egregious, um, you know, traumas and hurts and things that people might say so that, um, you know, eventually over time, those folks start to see some of those, some of those things. And then as they start to get farther along on their journey, um, you know, the, the things are less hurtful and they can, have more dialogues with people of color that maybe, you know, are some of those more, more brave space type of discussions. Is, is that a role that you think allies can play where, where they can, uh, you know, be kind of like the, like the beginners, the beginner's circle almost like the, like the step one, the one version of this? 
Yes, yes, there's a role, uh, and the role has to be uh, informed. The problem is that when folks read online and they do certain things, they're not being guided through the process. And that's where a lot of the mistakes happen because they're not being guided through the process. They don't have a structure to, to understand that there is a lot of cultural humility that should happen even when you ally with anyone. There's a lot of humility that comes with this advocacy that you are trying to do. There's a lot of humility that comes with recognizing your own privileges in, in advocating. What one person could do and be arrested for, right? When, if a white friend or a person gets arrested for something and I get arrested for something, same protests perhaps, in the next year when we apply to jobs together, I may be facing repercussions of that actions very differently and very severely than them. That's a humility that should come in when we do these things. When we draw people into this, we have to pay attention to what the consequences look like after the math. Because what truly is true, and we all know, is that you can take off an advocacy and a sign and put it on the side. I cannot take off my skin. I cannot wash it off. I cannot cover it up. I cannot do certain things with my name. I can, I can dodge any of these things. So the privilege, the humility and the privilege, noticing, realizing where they are, what they are, right, and being aware of those is part of the first step. That's why we always say consciousness lifting is very important. The awareness of these things is first step to really doing this work. In, so there's a healthy allyship and there's an unhealthy allyship. And some allyships sometimes are not healthy because of the way in which they are broached and the way in which they are approached. Um, so for me, it's a guided allyship for me is one of the things that is more, one that comes with humility and one that comes with understanding of privilege and positionality on these issues lends itself for more learning and more unlearning. It's a, it's a great point. And in the unlearning, especially, I think that, um, you know, that is, that is something that I think people tend to underestimate is just how much we have learned just by like, there's that old saying, right? Where the, the, the fish is the last to discover water, right? Like the fish doesn't even know. Cause that's just what they, what they see and what they do. And, and for, for many, um, you know, white folks like myself, um, that, that, that the white, you know, culture, so to speak is, is what's dominant and the ways that, the ways that we, the ways that we speak, um, the different things that we, that we value, that we talk about, uh, we don't think about it. And that is the water that, that we're not recognizing. And so there's, there's so much to unlearn. It's almost like, you know, you go to, um, I love to travel, right. And you go to another country and you see different customs or different things that they do. And you're like, well, that's weird. And then you, and then you think, well, well, it's no more weird than the way that we do it. It's just different. Right. And so being able to recognize that and, and just recognize how so many of our, our systems, uh, you know, are put in place and, and set in a way where, you know, those in power determine what those, uh, what those things are, you know, the, the right, the right, quote unquote, right ways to talk, the right, quote unquote, right ways to dress. Those right. sorts of things are, are really important for, for people to recognize and to unlearn and just to check themselves when they, when they are noticing some of those unconscious things that might be happening. And it's very difficult, you know, Andrew, because you think of, uh, there's a saying that uh, goes to the beliefs rather than reasoning are the basic fundamental faculty of man. 
right? Beliefs rather than reasoning is the basic fundamental faculty of man. So it tells you that this, this is difficult. <laughs> yeah, even if you provide facts, even folks that have gone through trainings and things of that nature stepped into, step into these blind spots all the time because this unlearning is very difficult. We have a three-phase model of the firm that we use for uh, self-discovery and work around um, being introspective. What does it mean to be contemplative, to, to be contemplative um, in this regard, in regards to racial healing and, and you know, reconciliation and so on and so forth? And what we, we know in this, in this process is that, uh, I, I will share the model out there, it's okay. It's you, and so this is part of learning for all of us. So uh, one of the things we know is that once you reflect, what typically happens when you look in the mirror? You're seeing your reflection? You see a reflection, and if you have a topic of mind and you're contemplating on something, and you reflect deeply, what do you? What typically happens? The the more that you're reflecting, the the, the stronger it becomes. Um, you know, it it really grows in your mind, and you you can't think about anything else. Um, you know, it it just becomes again that that kind of normal, that natural to you. What we found is that you discover something. So the first step is the, the reflection. The second step is as you focus squarely on something, you discover something about yourself, ultimately. And that discovery can be very painful mm. or very uplifting. And herein lies the guide that I was talking about. You need someone to work with you on this. As you discover this, if it's painful, then you need somebody to work with you to say, hey, it's okay, let's work with this. Here's what it means. Here's what you need to do. Here's how you can approach it. Here are the resources you need for that. And once you do that, you, once you understand that, you go through this process of acceptance. And that process and that acceptance and that acceptance, you gain perspective. You discover, you reflect, you discover, and you gain perspective through a discovery. Because now you have a different worldview. You've seen something about yourself that you don't, you didn't necessarily see before. Because you say, are you looking in the mirror? Do you see a lion or the cat? Right? <laughs> you thought you were a lion, but you're seeing a cat in the mirror, in, you know, in the reflection. So what happens in that could be very revealing to who you are and how you hold certain truths about that thought you had, that thing you were thinking about, becomes very important. So... The RDP model helps us dig deeper, and these are all interconnected. We have a way of connecting the dots to people to see truly what that looks like in their processes or when they go through an introspective um, um, phase of this work. The other thing is that while you do this discovery, you gain this perspective, what to do with it becomes very important, as I said before. So now you need to find ways in which you can you could uh, um, support things and, and be more actionable and intentional in what you support and how you do it, uh, how you advocate. Your voice will change. How you, how you advocate will change ultimately if you do this guided process. And you said something that I thought I think is very important and warrants uh, an opportunity for all of us to think about deeply. That Travel is very important and essential to exposing us to things we never knew. What I'm talking about is what we call counter-narratives are very important 
in doing this work as well and being an ally and supporting some of the things we're doing because historically what you we know as as Chimamanda Adichie said in her uh, her powerful um, uh, 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 what do you call it? TEDx a TED talk about the power of single story right historically when you learn about things relating to slavery or racism in this country and either structural systemic individual um, racism uh, or, or as we call it um, individual meanness you find that there's a narrative guiding it there's a narrative that is being pushed for folks to believe and they believe it fundamentally hence why the quote i use for you is that you know these beliefs are fundamental beyond the reasoning because they become truths what our job is is to provide counter narratives that help people unlearn those beliefs so important you know you you mentioned it uh but it's it, it it's something that i just wanted to wanted to underscore just that importance of all the reasoning that we do that we think we're being rational um, you know, it's, it's really all reasoning is motivated reasoning. You're, you're trying to, whatever new evidence is coming in, it's going through the lenses, you know, the, the worldviews, the culture that you already have. And, and those are the ways that, that you're seeing things. You're not seeing things as they are. You're seeing, you know, them as you expect them to be. And so if something comes in that confirms your worldview, then you're, you know, happy to retweet it. And if something that comes in against your worldview, then you're tr you're trying to pick it apart. You're picking that study apart. You're picking trying to trying to figure out why it's wrong, um, rather than maybe figuring out, as you're mentioning, how it might be able to maybe cause a little bit of pain, um, but then offer a different perspective or just a more nuanced perspective. Um, and, and so that's kind of where I, I think we could move into, uh, you know, in this discussion. I, I actually the the Rochester Business Journal had a diversity and inclusion summit. And Candace Lucas, who I don't know uh, personally, but I, I thought this was really interesting, taking a, an old saying about how, you know, diversity is being invited to the party and inclusion is being asked to dance. Um, and she said, but I think there's, there's more to it. I think that inclusion is being asked to help plan the party, um, which I really loved, right? Like it's not just, it's, you know, taking that inclusion to a whole nother level. And so as organizations, again, who probably uh, were well-meaning, but didn't take enough of a sense of urgency of both creating that diversity and inclusion at their organization. I know that you do a lot on, on both ends, right? In terms of the recruitment of you know, diverse individuals, uh, but then also the starting to create some of those brave spaces that you're talking about, starting to evolve the culture. And so for those that are recognizing, wow, we have a lot of work to do in our organization, Yes. What's a good place for them to start? Because, you know, in some ways, if they if they bring in, uh, you know, diverse candidates for positions and they don't feel included, then the people aren't going to stick around very long. Um, you know, but at the same time, if they spend all this time, OK, let's create this this, you know, inclusive environment. And it's like, well, what are you waiting for? You need to bring in some some people that might challenge your worldview. So it's a little bit of, of like a chicken or egg thing. So what what would you recommend to someone who, you know, reaches out to you and says, Hey, I, I'm, you know, we, we've screwed up or, you know, we, we haven't made this a priority. We need to now, where the heck do we start? Excellent. Excellent question. And they're not mutually exclusive. Uh, what we know that is that we could do them simultaneously. Um, it depends on the way in which the organization is structured and how they want to approach this. And I've, I've resisted the, the temptation 
to go in and do one-time diversity trainings uh, for the past couple of years, particularly because they're not sustainable. You hear a lot of the folks that are doing these recruitments that are bringing in folks they're like, we did this training, we did that, but it's not there. It's not working because, uh, and there's an interesting Harvard uh, Business uh, Review uh, about, uh, wrote about this, uh, what, what actually happens. One of the things that I know uh, becomes important is this fierce sense of urgency. Carter writes in his, uh, his uh, uh, um, uh, work about uh, leading change, why trans transformation efforts fail, writes about why organizations actually, uh, a lot of transformations fail. And one of the key points was that this sense of lack of sense of urgency on issues, particularly around surrounding issues of diversity, because folks don't know how to how do I start it? I don't know where to go. Who do, I, I, don't, I don't really know. Herein lies why I keep saying and um, that you need folks that know what they're doing to be with you, to help go guide, coach, and direct you through it. And so these things are not mutual. You can recruit and build the relationship and, and the opportunity for folks to start feeling a sense of belonging. We've done some work in the past where as we were doing the recruitments, we started changing the recruiting process. How? By being at the forefront of the recruiting process. We went in and looked at the recruitment policies and strategies they used, how people are being sourced. When people are applying, we help them structure a way in which the search committees and the managing uh, managers and hiring managers and teams are trained to look at biases before they engage in the search process. After that happens, we engage with them to institutionalize some of these processes, and we are intentional in who applies to these jobs because we encourage them to submit, for example, diversity statements. So we know who we are hiring. So we see who we are hiring. You know, we have diverse candidates and inclusive leaders. These are simultaneously used sometimes. But some, we could have a white person, a white folks who are quite versed and learned and educated themselves, taking opportunity to be allies and are intentionally working towards this allyship on a regular basis. How do you bring those types of folks in to champion this work with you? What we know is that this is not a one person um, approach, that you cannot do this. If you're out there and you're thinking you want to champion this thing and you want to do it alone, I, we, I'm, I'm sorry to tell you uh, these efforts might fail. If you do that by yourself, you have to live and demonstrate your inclusion. If you want to be a DNI advocate and a champion, you have to demonstrate and, and epitomize this expectation you have of your organization by being inclusive yourself, by working with people intentionally yourself. That's what lends you the voice you need to build the capacity and build the support and build the structures that will help. Uh, advance the causes and the things that you need to see in the organization. So that's one aspect of it that, you know, we have to pay attention to. Um, I don't want to lay out all of these things. Uh, we have, you know, I don't know how much time we have, but as you speak, uh, I, I think of so many things, so many things come to my mind. Um, where you start is you start demonstrating this yourself. Do the reflection. When you're done with the reflection, you're done with it. This is mostly a self-exploratory journey. Once you are in the journey, 
then let that journey reflect your work. Start showing it in your work, right? And then you start bringing it and advocating and, and so on and so forth. And finding somebody who can help you do this is equally as important um, as, 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 as you doing the journey on your own. And I don't want to, I, I, wanna, I, I know you want to jump in with something. I, when you do find that person, make sure they're not doing what I just told you, the one-time diversity training and walk away from you. Make sure there's someone who's committed, who knows what they're doing, and there's, they're, they're going to work with you through this process. And, and that's a, they have a sustained mindset and attitude about how this, is, this ought to transpire in your organization. I think that's so, so powerful. Um, you know, that, that check the box. We had our diversity training this, this year, you know, and we'll have it again next year. It's, you know, again, maybe well-intentioned or maybe it's, you know, trying to control costs or whatever, but it's just, it's not acceptable anymore. Um, it never was. Uh, but, but now society, uh, is starting to, to wake up to that fact. And, and I think that you make some great points too, about why, especially those of us, you know, white individuals or leaders who, you know, came up in this organization or, or whatever, and, you know, now we're leading it, we may not recognize without someone like yourself to, to guide us through the process of how even, you know, the, I, the, I wouldn't even think about, you know, how we wrote our, uh, you know, job description or how we write the, you know, on, on any of the recruitment websites or all of those sorts of things may detract, uh, you know, from, from people of color from, from coming to, you know, join the business. And then the other thing that I wanted to really just find so important um, that, that you're mentioning is not just that, you know, that diversity of how many people are we bringing in, but are they coming in in leadership roles? And, and I think that right now um, I'm starting to see where, uh, you know, diversity officers are being given that, that chief role, right? That, that C-suite role, um, which, is, which is a positive step. But at the same time, I also want to see where that isn't the only, uh, you know, C-suite office in your organization held by a person of color, because I think that's just exactly. you, unacceptable. You, you took it out of my mouth. <laughs> and, and so one of the other things I, I actually saw, um, it was from Bernice King, um, mm -hmm. one of Martin Luther King's daughters. She recently mm -hmm. posted on, on Facebook um, that the statement, let's invite more black people to the table, implies ownership of the table and control of who is invited. And, and just, again, recognizing even some of those statements that we make. Um, and, and racism um, is about that, that power and that, that you know, that, that, almost implied ownership of the table and, and being able to, to recognize that. So that's one of the things that I wanted to at least get a little bit of your, of your advice on for, for leaders is how do we create not only that inclusive environment where uh, you know, the, the people that we're recruiting are more likely to, to stick around and feel, uh, you know, feel included, uh, but then how do we start to create opportunities? And I think that some of it starts with having leaders of color in the C-suite and at all levels of leadership within the organization so that people can see themselves, you know, growing in that way. But what other kinds of ways can we create cultures where we can really uh, grow those leaders, all leaders, but especially leaders of, of color uh, that, that want to stick around and that have pathways to stick around in our organization? 
wonderful pieces that you bring birdies came in there and uh, you know i who am i to say uh to top that but i could just move that needle further and just a little further of what she was trying to communicate is that holding the key to the to, to, to the door um in of itself is innately a powerful thing to recognize remember we talked about privilege earlier on um is is to, to to realize that to recognize the fact that you, you even have that ability to do that right and for those who don't know black and brown folks are engineers we're doctors we're financial analysts we're economists we're faculty or from a plethora of fields we're we're, we're nurses, we're, we're, we're everything you can imagine we are. And as you bring folks to these roles, right, I like that it's an initial step to have a chief diversity officer. I, 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 I'm big on it because you, we all have to crawl before we walk. This is my mentality about this. You crawl before you work, you, you walk. And if leadership has this mindset, the next step is after you recognize and you bring someone into the C-suite and they're sitting on the seat, know very well that their role is not just to be the voice for diversity. Hence why I talked about having inclusive leadership to begin with. Because if they are aware and the person comes into that C-suite, there's no more performative diversity work being done, which is one of borrowed words, one of my great, uh, former colleague and friend, uh, Dr. Yamuna Sangra Sivam at Nazareth College, we always talked about, we talk about these performative diversity efforts that typically happen, where folks would do, look at our C-suite, look what we've done. And when you go through the organization or the company, there's a clear sense of disconnect between leadership and the people, mid-management and entry to mid-level positions. So what, what you end up having is a diversity champion or advocate who's sitting in a room with little to no voice in that space. And as time goes on, they leave. You have what we call racial battle fatigue happening, a whole host of things, the micro invalidations and aggressions that happen in those C-suites are very, very painful for these folks. However, there's a subtlety here. Not all people of color qualify to be in that space. That's something we have to pay attention to. Not all can be in that space. So here in come what EDI we do, we try to do is just be intentional on who we work to advance into these positions because we wanna make sure that they come with demonstrated, right, demonstrated competencies and skills and ability and leadership, wherewithal and understanding and awareness, the whole, a, a slew of things that we look at to make sure that whoever you're getting in there can take the heat and they're prepared to do what we call be bold. So part of our inclusive leadership work where we do our certification is we have a bold leadership certification process where we're talking to people about how you be bold and how you prepare yourself to be bold in those spaces. Because ultimately, you're going to be influencing 
uh, the strategic vision and you know, the direction of your organization. And you ought to know what you're doing and what you're talking about. So that is that really a subtlety in this, in this conversation is that whoever you put in there, even if it's one, right, should have to be powerful, have to be a bold, really vetted leader who has demonstrated commitment to this. And they could be on a spectrum of learning. That's fine. But they have to really be able to demonstrate certain key things that we will look for in the application process to make sure that uh, we know who we're passing on and who's coming to you. And, and we, we're working to coach at the same time as well. So there's opportunities for coaching to, to help, you know, um, this person disseminate information that can percolate throughout the organization in a way that everybody can smell and, and taste, right? And so that's part of where, where I think uh, the, the silver line in here that we have to pay attention to. Yeah, it's really important. You know, I, I think so many times um, you do just maybe expect that from someone. And actually, Ibrahim uh, Kendi talks yes. about how he had to go on his own journey because he had, you know, as much as there is a, a, a racism or, you know, a privilege or an unawareness of, of white people, there are certain things that he, he talks about where that, that he had um, you know, brought into his own mindset because of the way that he had brought up, been brought up in a predominantly white culture, right? And, and things that he had to unlearn. And so um, I think that that's a really important point that you make that, um, you know, making sure that or, or providing the resources for, for these individuals of color to be in that bold space, to, to speak up and to, to be the ones to, to make change and help pull the organization in that positive direction. And as I say about qualifications and competencies, there's a myth about meritocracy that we have to be aware of, right? So the myth of meritocracy is that you work so hard, you, you know, again, we know it's not completely true. There's a myth there and not everybody gets that. And so you find a lot of chief diversity officers dealing with severe issues, a lot of things, because they're, they're, they're carrying the weight um, of, of, a, of a thousand people, sometimes organizations, tens of thousands of employees, their right? ability to perform at their optimal, being optimal, uh, optimal selves are being hindered by this issue. So these leaders, these folks, I said, are, are being seen as, oh, if you keep working, if you keep dealing with these things, <laughs> you will get to the top, you know, you will end up, and we know it's not true. We talk about equity all the time. If what is what is the guiding principle in your C-suite? How do you engage in discussions? Are every is everybody's voice contributed? Uh, is everybody's voice accepted and heard the same? Is the contribution are the contributions leveled? Right, those are the questions we have to really poke to get under the under the skin of what is happening in these spaces that we're trying to understand because mostly they're behind closed doors and, and so on and so forth. And a lot of uh, cabinet folks are guided by certain oaths and certain things they take, certain principles that you don't air out, certain things they can't speak. So you find folks smiling behind the podium, stand, you know, smiling behind the mic and doing certain things, but deep down are a lot of issues that are... Uh, are, are 
informing the way in which they're doing their work. So I wanted to say that because I think even within those spaces, there are subtleties that we have to pay attention to, right? Once we dig, it's, it's, like, it's like a saying I used to do. If you want to enjoy an onion, you may have to cry, hmm. right? So <laughs> onions make things really, I'm a big, I use it in a lot of my, as you know, I'm passionate about cooking. So I have a restaurant. So, so if you really want to enjoy the onions, you, you may have to shed a tear. That's what leadership needs to know. Right, you want to enjoy the fruits of diversity, you may have to face some unlearning and some difficult decisions that are coming for it. That's why we use the word bold. It's intentional. You're gonna have to think about what that looks like. And once you start shedding tears, are you gonna drop the knife and go wash your face and do all of these things? Or are you gonna stick in there and cut it because you know there's light at the end of the tunnel? The tear will go away. <laughs> I love that. Well, it actually reminds me of one, a couple things that you've taught me over time that I, I think are, are really important for, for this kind of part of the discussion. One being that if you don't create that inclusive environment where different perspectives are appreciated and encouraged, then there's no point in the diversity. The, like you get the value of the diversity when you create the inclusion and the compassion and the openness. Uh, and then the other thing that you've really always, always kind of taught me along those lines is that those, in, those principles of inclusion and openness are, are good for everybody. Yeah. Like whether that's, whether that's people of color um, or people in other, you know, marginalized groups or, or, or women, or even just somebody that's in your organization that's a little bit shy and isn't going to speak up a lot. And so I think those are really two principles um, I, I hope at this point we're, we're beyond the point of need, needing to prove why people should have more diversity and inclusion in their organizations. Uh, but at the same time, it does impact your, your innovation. It impacts your ability to learn and grow and adapt. It, it impacts your ability to you know, connect with your, your customers. Hopefully you want your inside your organization to reflect your customer base, to reflect your communities um, that you're a part of. And, and so it is really in the long term, it, it's, it's a no brainer. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I thank you so much for all that you've taught me. I, I joke with you all the time that I wish I had more of our conversations recorded and, or I feel like I should be cutting a check for all the, all the knowledge that you're dropping on me every time we have a conversation. So um, for those of you who did get a, a taste of, of everything that Mo has to, to offer and, and really were interested in doing some, some of this work in a very intentional way and, and with a renewed sense of urgency. Mo, where can they find you to learn a little bit more about, about you and about EDI and how maybe they could engage with you? EDI, uh, thank you, uh, Andrew. As always, I think uh, the learning is always mutual. Uh, there are a lot of things I've learned from our interactions and our engagements that I can't even begin to, you know, uh, ex ex expound on here and express here, uh, as I've said it in person, and we've, we've been able to have our coffee time and tea time, as you know, um, and, and discuss these things. So it's absolutely mutual because, and, and the opportunity for being on this platform to, to share a little bit and talk about some of the things that we can do and think about things differently. Um, we are, uh, here in Rochester, New York, but we do our work across the country. I was fortunate enough to go to Ghana two years ago to do some work. Um, in Africa, we were thinking about doing a travel trip to Ghana and doing a, a whole, uh, we'll, we'll discuss this at our next uh, 
engagement, but it's E-D-I-E-S-C.com. Um, you'll be able to you'll see some of the work we do there and I'm on LinkedIn and so on and so forth. And, and one of the things that I, I always say is that um, learning about this is always a journey, much like anything else. If you think of it as a one shot thing, then we're doing ourselves a disservice. Uh, and we're doing the society a disservice and we're being dishonest and disingenuous with this work, to this work. So um, uh, have a, a sustained approach and mindset and attitude about this. And as, as, as um, you navigate these spaces and you operate to think about ways in which you can do this work more meaningfully, you can definitely reach out to us um, through the contact us page and you will hear from us immediately and we'll be able to consult and connect with you and discuss some of the ways in which we can work meaningfully together and partner. Well, you've certainly been a, a valuable uh, teacher on, on my journey uh, and, and a friend as well. Thanks so much for joining us today, Mo, and uh, look forward to doing this again. Excellent. Likewise. It's part two, three, four, five. So you got it. It's a journey. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you so much, Andy. Thanks, as always, to all the evolutionaries out there listening across more than 30 countries around the world. We hope that you found it to be both inspirational and full of actionable insights to guide you on your own evolutionary journey. We've grown this movement entirely by word of mouth, so if you know someone who might find value in listening to this episode, we'd be deeply grateful if you'd share it with them. And of course, make sure you're subscribed on your favorite listening app so that you're notified as soon as we release new episodes each week. Together, we can evolve business toward a more conscious capitalism.